Morning, everyone. Uh, if you notice, our sound system slowly by slowly is getting a little bit back to normal, which we're super excited about. Uh, so lots of little tweaks and things still have to happen in order for us to get back to where we were, but excited that we are on that, uh, on that path to being more fixed than broken. Excellent. So we are in John chapter 11. And uh, last week, uh, we started the chapter, and we're talking about Lazarus and his um, sickness. And at the, end of chapter, at the end of the verses we looked at, we saw verse 14, 15, and 16 sort of summarizing what was happening so far in chapter 11. Uh, Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus has died. They're still a few days away from that area. And for your sake, I'm glad that he was not I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Uh, so two things happened in the, those few verses that summarize so far what we've seen in chapter 11. One is that God's timing is not always our timing. We have this game plan and this outline and this function of how God should operate in our lives how and when he should answer our prayers, how and when he should intervene, how and when he should do things. And Jesus was faced with that with Mary and Martha. And Jesus said, hey, I'm here for the time being. It's going to be okay. But in the process of days going by, Lazarus dies. And you might feel like all hope is lost then. Jesus, you had an opportunity to save him. You had an opportunity to heal him so he didn't die. Now all hope is lost. And so Thomas is looking at this whole scenario going, well, the conclusion is we're going to die too. And we have that same challenge of waiting on God's timing. And when God's timing doesn't come through according to our standard of when things should happen, sometimes we feel like all is lost and we're going to die. Because there's no in-between. We're either going to survive or we're going to die. That's the only option that Thomas sees. And in this process, Jesus is going to command our attention, like he's already done in John, but in a new and fresh way in John chapter 11. He's going to command our attention, demonstrating once again that he is the Messiah, the overcoming God King, and there is no one like him at all. The first year that I was a pastor, I was uh, in a small church in South Carolina, and I remember within the first couple weeks of being the pastor there, in fact, I wasn't even the full-fledged pastor. I was a seminary student, still going to school, but I was uh, pastoring the church at the same time. And within a few weeks of doing this full-time, we had a death in the church. And it was incredibly painful and sorrowful because this, this man had lost his wife who I think they had lived together, been husband and wife for 70 years. I mean, they were in their 90s and they'd been married their entire lives to each other. And she passed away. And of course, being the pastor of a church, it's my responsibility to lead the funeral. And they don't have classes in seminary on things like that. They really should, but they really don't. And um, I remember going to one of my professors saying, hey, you know, this weekend or Friday or Saturday, I have to do this funeral. I've never done one before. What do I do? And 
He asked the class, he said, class is a good area of discussion, what would you do? And every student who had no experience whatsoever had lots of ideas. Oh, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And uh, the seminary professor said, all of those are good academic responses. And every one of them would be fine, but I would suggest to him and to all the other students that you focus on one thing and one thing only. Read Scripture. If you go to a passage of Scripture that has content that will minister to the people who are feeling grief, but also celebrate life and resurrection, you can never go wrong. And of course, my first attention went to, where am I going to find a passage like that? And my mind just goes blank. I've got no idea. Where, where is a passage like that? And the professor says, start reading in John chapter 1 and you will find it halfway through. Okay, so that was my key. So I started in like chapter eight. And I got to chapter 11 and I'm like, you're right, Professor Shaw, this was a perfect text. And so I simply went through chapter 11 and read it. I didn't have to produce any great sermon. I didn't have to make all these connections. The word is plainly clear on what Jesus is doing and why he is doing it and what our response is. It wasn't more than a month later than he passed away. And I was puzzled again, and I went to Professor Shaw, and I said, uh, Professor, uh, I used the one text last, you know, weeks ago for his wife. Now, he's not going to know any different, but I can't use the same text again. People will know, oh, you just recycled your funeral sermon from a month ago. And that's when Professor Shaw gave me some of the best advice I ever had in seminary. People will forget. People will forget. They will go, hey, I've heard that before. Oh, neat. Tim's preaching on that. That's amazing. That's a great passage. He goes, a month is plenty of time. They won't know that you had just preached it. Well, I... Very short story, and I'll get back to the text. I remember thinking that very thing uh, years and years later, and I went through a text, and a couple weeks later I said, oh, wow, I just feel like I should preach on that again and remember what Professor Shaw said. They won't remember it. So I'm preaching that sermon again, and a lady comes up to me after church, opens her Bible, and says, I write down the date <laughs> and the person Every time I hear a sermon, and right here it says, you preached this about a month and a half ago. I said, okay, so people do remember now. <laughs> but there are some scriptures that are so vitally connected to what we're going through in life and in death that John chapter 11, I am not embarrassed to say, I probably preached that sermon out of John chapter 11 about 10 times that first year. Because in that first year of pastoring, I had about 12 people that passed away in the church and family members. And I preached that every single time. And no one came to me and said, oh, I've heard that before. They came to me and said, wow, that text is perfect. That text is perfect. And it's perfect because it really does reach our heart and our soul and our emotions when we're going through grieving. So let's start right away in John chapter 11, verse 17 through 27, the very first section there. 
and we're going to be hit with a response at the very end. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to come forward, but I am going to ask you as we're reading this text and we get to the end verses that you answer that for yourself. Because if you do not have an ability to answer this, if you're unsure of the answer to this, if you're looking at this going, I don't know if I believe all this, today is the perfect day for you to own that answer and go before the Lord and say, I need your help with this. I don't know if I truly believe this. And I guarantee you, after the service this morning, every one of the elders who are helping with communion can answer those questions with you and pray with you and make sure that you do believe what is being presented here. So at the very beginning, we know that uh, Lazarus has died. We know that Jesus is now making the two-day journey to Bethany, which is near Jerusalem. And we know that Thomas is afraid of dying. That's what we know for sure. Verse 17. Now when Jesus came, two days passed, he found that Lazarus has already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning his brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. A lot of us stop at that moment and go, you're right, if God had intervened, things would be different. If God had changed this outcome, I wouldn't be suffering like this. And a lot of us stop with that complaint against God, charging him with wrongdoing. But look at how she continues. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. There is a woman who is dealing with grief, struck in grief. Her brother has died, and she knows that Jesus had the ability to save this pain from their lives and says with great faith, even though I know he's dead now, I know that God will listen to you. And whatever you ask of God, he will do. He'll accomplish it. And there will be great praise when you do. So there is the humanity. I wish it would have been different. And your timing, I didn't like it. But I know even though I don't like your timing, you still are a God of great ability. You still are the overcoming God king that can intervene and change the outcome. It may look impossible for us to change the outcome of death. But in Christ, you have the ability to change that outcome even now. I imagine that was so difficult for her to say so torn between the emotions of losing her brother, all the uncertainties that life would now bring, and the thought, Jesus could have prevented it. He didn't, but now he's here. Her faith was strong. Even in the face of disappointment, of timing, her faith did not waver. She knew who her God was and how Christ the Messiah could answer her prayers. So verse 23 Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So she had great faith. She knew God's promises. She knew the Old Testament. She knew that scripture was filled with the content that this life and death is not the end, that there is eternal life and one day there'll be resurrection again. Who knows the timing? That's in God's mind, in his hand, in his plan. It's not for us to find out. But she has confidence. Jesus, I know you're trying to encourage me. 
I know that when you say he'll rise one day, I know that I'm confident of how Scripture communicates to us the resurrection of the dead unto life again. And Jesus said to her, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, Jesus is not doing doublespeak here. He's not confused about life and death, but he has great clarity about it because he is life. He is the resurrection. He is the I am that the Old Testament had prophesied about. He's the fulfillment of God on earth in our midst. And Jesus says, I know that there is this thing called physical death where your heart stops beating, your mind stops having all of those synapses fire, and your lungs go quietly still with no more breath. And you begin to decay. Dust to dust, ashes to ashes, you return to the ground. He's aware of that. He's not saying death isn't real or death can be cheated. Real physical death happens, but there's also a death that is far greater than physical death, spiritual death, if I am separated from God, which there is no hope from except for Christ. And so he says, if you have me, if you have life, if you believe in me, then even though you may die this physical death, you shall be alive, you shall be fine you will be okay, and better than okay, you will be triumphant in the resurrection. So he plainly clears, or plainly states with clarity that when he says, I am the resurrection, I am life, that both death, the death physically and the death spiritually, has no power over him. He has power over both. And he ends that statement. But let me, let me read it again, starting in verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he ends with this question. Do you believe this? What he's asking Mary and Martha and all of those standing around him, he's asking them in the context of this death, of this painful, sorrowful, hurtful loss of your brother, do you believe that I have power over life and death, and do you believe that I have the ability to change your heart in such a way that you will never experience physical, spiritual death ever again? Do you believe that I can resurrect the dead? the dead of heart, and the dead whose heart does not beat any longer. He's asking them, and he's asking us. He's asking me, he's asking you. Do you believe this about Jesus? That he truly is who he says he is. That he has the power over life and death. That he has the ability to change a heart from death to life. That he can transfer us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of heaven? Do you believe he is the bread of life, the light of the world, the great I am, the alpha and the omega? Do you believe he truly is the incarnate word? 
that he created all things and sustains all things by the power of his word and that he is coming again one day that will be a surprise to many and too late for many. That he will return not as a helpless babe in a manger surrounded by shepherds and angels and wise men praising him, but he'll be accompanied by the hosts of heaven on a war horse, dividing those who believe and those who do not believe. And the moment of his arrival, there is no switching teams. There will be no other option of, oh, you know what? I, I, I do believe now. I see you now. He shows you himself right here and now in this text, plain as day. Christ is the resurrection and the life. And he charges everyone with hearing those words with a life and death decision to make. Do I believe that? Do I believe that? I know what the words are. They make sense to me. I know all the stories surrounding it. I can quote the verse. I can find it in chapter 11. Knowledge about it is different than belief in him. Knowledge about God, anyone can have as they read it. In fact, the devil and his demons all know the truth of Scripture. They don't believe it, but they know it. So Jesus is not asking, do you know that I am the bread of life? Do you know that I am the light of the world? Do you know that I am the resurrection? Do you know that I am the light and the life? He's not asking, do you know that information? He's asking, do you believe it? Belief and knowledge, while connected, are different. Belief is 100% dependence. It's not me, it's got to be you. I don't contribute to life. I don't contrib contribute to my own goodness. I don't contribute to my forgiveness. I don't contribute to my relationship with the Father. It's got to be all of Jesus or nothing. Belief is absolute dependence upon that truth that he is my life that he is my hope of the resurrection, that he is my Savior, that he is my Messiah, that he is my God, that he is my King. There's a world of difference. And I fear, I desperately fear, that there are many who go through life in and out every Sunday, in and out tithing and giving and serving, in and out volunteering, in and out devoting themselves to singing God's praises. But they are deceiving themselves. Because the activity of churchiness is not belief in God. It's activity of churchiness. Belief in God is a surrender and a dependence. Father, I cannot save myself. Father, my faith is weak. Father, I don't even know if I believe the right things. Father, I need you. Save me. That is a belief of faith. So do not be caught off guard, my brothers and sisters. Knowledge about Christ is different than do I believe it.
radically different. And the difference is eternal damnation or eternal life. So he makes that statement. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live the resurrection and spiritual life. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. I will never experience spiritual death as I believe in Christ. Do you believe this? And listen to Martha's response. This is what I want your response to be. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. A simple faith, not, not a difficult statement to make, but one that truly showed her heart. Without you, I have nothing, but you are my all in all. You are the Christ, the Son of God, who's come. And when she said this, verse 28 through the next section, verse 37, when she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. So when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in a place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were in her house consoling her, Mary uh, saw, when they saw her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Super common in the Jewish culture in these days, and even in Orthodox churches today, that when someone died, the whole city, all the friends and family would just show up at the house crying with the people who lost someone. And so the Jews were all gathered at Mary and Martha's house, grieving the loss of Lazarus, grieving with them, and as tradition, they would follow the grieving people to wherever they were going, weeping and wailing and singing songs of sorrow. I think a lot of it was probably pretend because you could actually hire professional mourners to go to your house and do this for you. Uh, it wasn't just out of the goodness of their hearts. They were being paid by the family. And, of course, the more wealth you had, the more expectation that you would hire more and more mourners to be present. So how many of these people were just simply paid to be there or how many were there were really out of a true sense of loss? Scripture doesn't tell us. But they are following the protocol. When they leave, oh, i got to follow them because everyone wants to see how important this person was when they died, so we're going to cry along with them. So Mary gets up, walks out of the house, follows Martha to the place that Jesus is staying, and all the Jews follow, thinking that they're going to just simply cry together on the road to the tomb. Verse 20, uh, 32, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, said to him Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man not also keep this man from dying? You've got to make up your mind about Christ. He either is who he says he is, 
or he is indeed deceiving everyone around him. And people responded in those two ways. They responded as Martha and Mary even. Lord, you could have prevented this, but in the absence of that, I know that you were able to raise in her life. Yes, I know. I'm the life and the resurrection. I confirm that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Or, you could challenge his authority, you could challenge his timing, and you could be like some of these Jews that were just surrounding him at the moment. Ah, you know, he saved all these other people. Can't he save himself? Take yourself down from the cross. They're full of ridicule. They're, they're not really looking for an answer there. They're just laying blame on him, looking for any reason whatsoever to discredit him, to challenge him, to dismiss him, because accepting him is indeed challenging. It is admitting, I have sinned. I've sinned. And this sin is so great, it separates me from God. And there is nothing I can do about it. I am helpless. And to declare that you are helpless really strikes at the pride of humanity. We can do it. You can do it. Just pull yourself up by the bootstraps and go for it. You're independent. You're strong. You can do it. And when we are faced with the greatest obstacle we can face, sin and our own mortality and our own judgment and our own guilt, we are helpless. And you can respond in one of two ways. Save me. Or, I don't believe you. I think you're possessed by a demon. I think you're a liar. I think you're a lunatic. I think this is all just a crutch for humanity. Poor, sad people crying out to a God who you cannot even see, who doesn't even answer you according to your own timing, who doesn't prove himself the way I want him to be proved. How pitiful you must be. And Jesus faced both of those questions all within the moment of arriving into the outskirts of town. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You are the Son of God, and I believe. <laughs> I thought he saved somebody. I guess he can't save himself. Now, I'm not a miracle worker, and I'm certainly not a doctor, but I think there is a great difference between healing a blind guy and raising someone from the dead. I think they're generally, as far as medical standards and science is concerned, curing blindness is amazing. But raising someone from the dead is absolutely otherworldly. It is miraculous. I don't see how the two things relate, but they're attacking Jesus by saying, oh, so maybe that healing the blind man wasn't really all that true. Maybe it was a trick. Maybe he wasn't really blind. Maybe this all is a sarad, fake, a fantasy. Maybe you're deluding us, tricking us, magic, sorcery, whatever it might be. Two responses. I believe or I criticize and tear down. I surrender or I pump my fist saying, no, you can't. 
I submit or I stand strong and reject. Jesus faced both. It's time for you to also make up your mind. You can't sit on the fence post. You can't go, you know what, one day I'll figure this out. You know, when I'm in the hospital and I know I'm about to die, I'll deal with this. Oh, how I wish, how I wish you'd have an opportunity such as that. How I wish that you'd have another breath, another day to make that decision. Maybe put it off until you have that deathbed moment. But not a single one of us are guaranteed a deathbed moment. The number of funerals I have done from a deathbed to the number of funerals I have done through an accident are about the same. Most people do not get an extra moment to think about their life before God and whether or not they believe this. I don't mean to seem dark and, and, and in any way um, put a fear in your heart. Actually, you know what? Maybe I do want to put a fear in your heart. How many of us are guaranteed safe arrival at home after the service today? I want you to raise your hand and say, I am guaranteed life today and I will get home safely. Who's guaranteed that? No one. That's a little grim. But it's truth. It's reality. How do we respond to that uncertainty of, do I get another day? Do I get another hour? I have read multiple historical accounts. <laughs> and every time I say that, every time I think about this, I always got to be ready. But I have heard multiple accounts of preachers preaching this very text with that very message. And they did not have another heartbeat. They died in the pulpit saying that very thing, that you are not guaranteed another moment and they died. So even the preacher's not guaranteed to finish the message about life and death, the uncertainty of death, and being ready for it. And neither are you. Because every one of these Jews that believed in Christ and rejected him, they're dead. It's going to happen to every single one of us unless the Lord returns in the meantime. We will all face a moment of death. Some of us may have days or weeks or months to prepare. You can prepare, though. You have this moment, this minute, this very next heartbeat and breath to answer the question, do you believe? And we're going to look at the rest of the text, uh, the rest of the chapter next week. But I want to encourage you that it is very possible that you are unsure what to do with all of this. 
I don't say this to make you question your salvation and to think you need to say, I love you, Jesus, save me again. Because asking multiple times doesn't save you extra. Saying one time, will you save me, is sufficient. Because our Savior is sufficient to work with little faith or big faith. So if you are struggling with sin that may make you feel distant from God, then this Lord's table is the perfect place for you. You see, this table and the participation in the sacrament are not for people who are perfect, who are strong believers, who are advanced Christians. It is for the Christian, like me and like you, who struggle with doubt, who struggle with sin, who are not perfect, who are weak, who sometimes don't know how to answer that question of how, how am I living for Christ? It is designed and given to us as a reminder of Christ's death. He did the work for us that we would not have to die on our own behalf. He's died for us. And so this is a celebration of him dying for us and us living for him. And so come to this table, even if you're weak in faith, even if you're doubting, even if you're unsure of that relationship with him, and he will strengthen you and build you up with the simple spiritual connection between this cup and this bread the breaking of his body, and the shedding of his blood. Now, as the elders come forth and we distribute this, one reminder, as we distribute this, hold on to it, and we're going to take it together. And as you come to him, come to him reminding yourself, I am dependent upon Christ. He is my Messiah, the overcoming God King. And even though the struggles of this life are real I know that in Christ I can find salvation through his work. Let's pray. Father, as we come before this table this morning, we pray that your blessing would be upon us, that you would use both this bread and this cup as a way to strengthen our faith, reminding us of your great sacrifice on our behalf. And, Father, the costliness of sin. It took the death of your Son to make us right with you. In your son's name we pray, amen.